Welcome to another episode of the XL Podcast. My name is Malorca Lee, and in these podcasts, I sit down with DJs and producers that I respect and admire and talk to them about their journey through music. On this episode, I have none other than the legend BK. Ben sits us down and talks all the way through his career from the start to where he is now, and it really is a brilliant story. You'll also be pleased to know that after a recent hard drive crash, I've found what I thought I had lost. So stay tuned for episodes I recorded during lockdown with Jam Elmar, aka Jam and Spoon, Pete Orm, Awesome 3, Slip Matt, and GTO, aka Mike Wells. These really are amazing and I'm so glad I found them. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to put these shows together and I really appreciate your support. So sharing, liking, leaving comments and reviews, it all helps. Back to the show and BK's journey through music. Welcome to another episode of the XL Podcast. Today's guest is BK. All the way from where in the world are you, mate? I'm in Oxford nowadays, originally from London, but I'm now in uh, sunny Oxfordshire. Is this you in the studio just now? Your home studio? Sitting in the studio, yeah. It looks a bit of a mess. You can see I've been talking through some vinyl in the background there. And I, I can, can you see what's in the corner there? Yeah, obviously the podcast people can't see what's in the corner. I can see the vinyls and an old Akai sampler. Yeah, I found my old Akai sampler in the loft the other day, so I've dug that out as well. But I mean, is that the S950? No, it's yes, S11, 11, oh, 3000, S3000. S3000. I think they had still had the same filters as the old S950s, because yeah, that was where they were famous for, weren't it? The, the filters yeah, and all the that. Old, the good filters, yeah. I've been doing a lot of that as well, see, like digging out old hardware. And who can it back up and, and just enjoy and being hands-on with things? Yeah, touching knobs, that didn't sound right, did it? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what you got up to in the studio is your business, you know, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just great to get hands-on. And I think a lot of the stuff that's getting made just now is is just amazing and at a great price. You know, companies like Behringer, have you checked out any of their stuff? Oh, the 303 thing and all of that, yeah. yeah. It's great, and they're doing some good synths as well, aren't they? Yeah, it's amazing. And also the price point. Because remember, when it when it all first came out, all these things were bargain bin things, and I think that's what kick-started the sort of dance music revolution. So maybe that is going to happen for a younger you audience. See, you can see that already if you look at a lot of the hard techno scene. Um funny enough they're playing a lot of my old stuff at the moment as well yeah. but that, that hard techno scene are using a lot of the acid and a lot of that kind of stuff and you can see that outboard stuff coming back into that sound 100% yeah which is just brilliant for creativity isn't it ah so much more fun yeah. I mean I, I, I dug out um, my Virus C I've been using again a lot recently I recently did a, um, a Fader Pro thing on uh, they re-released Revolution recently and um I did a Fader Pro tutorial on how it was made and I had, so I dug my old virus out, which is where that lead sound came from. And I just haven't put it away since. Yeah. yeah. Did you manage to find all, open up the original project from when you wrote it? No, I, I it's been re-released. It's re-released on Alan Fitzpatrick's label. Uh, and it's, um, it's the, I've had to recreate the whole thing from scratch for a new version. So it's like a rework. It's a whole, it's a whole new re-record. But I did have the, um, 
original virus that I made the sound on. Yeah. Um, and I had still, because when I turned the virus on, the battery had gone inside. Wow. And it lost all the sounds. And I was like, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I was like, fuck. I was literally walking around the studio swearing, swearing, swearing. And then I remembered I had a MIDI dump of all the sounds. Well, that's lucky. Um, from back in the day. So years and years ago, I'd recorded that into uh, uh, an old... Uh, sequence of logic and it managed to open that up and it played back and I bought a new Sub-Zero MIDI converter box and plugged it back in it was like oh, I played it and boom 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 all the sounds came back after I replaced the battery wow how lucky is that 20 years later <laughs> wow that's incredible even having the foresight to do a dump back then as well you know what I mean yeah <laughs> I did a mini dump of all the sounds yeah yeah <laughs> But I'll, well, listen, we'll, we'll start right at the start. And, and what I mean, yeah. I usually kind of just start by asking, has music always been in your family? And, and what's your sort of first recollection of being attracted to music? Probably through my sister, to be honest. My sister was really into music. I had an older sister and she'd go out and buy lots of vinyls and stuff and, and music. And she was listening to people like Fatback, um, Imagination. Yeah. And uh, Paul Hardcastle. 19. No, 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 19. I've got a sampler and I'm going to use, 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 <laughs> use, use, use. Right? But that was all like my first introduction into um, electronic music, especially that Paul Castle had an album called Rainforest. That was my sister's. And I just listened to that over and over again on the record player. And um, then the, an album she had called Night Dubbing, which was a remix album of Imagination's album but it was like an extended remix version where yeah. they had all the vocals panning left and right you know really obvious production techniques nowadays but in those days it was like wow the vocals go from one headphone to the other headphone yeah. um, so listening to all the, her stuff and then I started to go to the record shop even at the age of seven and eight and spend my pocket money on singles and new music and I bought all the old electro records yeah, at that age. I've still got the Electro albums now, Electro 1, 2. I'm, I started the whole collection when I was about eight years old, seven years Amazing. old. So I've still got that collection now um, and stuff like that. And that, that's probably what introduced me into the love of music. Yeah. See, when you're just mentioning Electro there especially, was, was there a time that maybe... I find that along with the love of music, there's this sort of counterculture, be it BMXing or breakdancing. Was was yeah. you ever interested in all that as well? Just going to say, you know, one of the other things, that movie, Breakdance. Yeah. There was two Breakdance movies that came out, wasn't there? Yeah. And they, they were a big influence. And then you found the music for those, like Egyptian Lover and stuff like that, that old yeah. track. You found the music off of those. And I've got the little seven-inch single from the, the movie Breakdance. So 100%. Although I was... Um, I never, I, my mum could never afford a BMX, so I had a grifter. Oh. Second-hand grifter, which actually, <laughs> I reckon is way cooler now. <laughs> yeah, weighed an absolute ton. I've got one now, so I, I bought one a few years ago that uh, to replace my old one as sort of a collector's thing. And um, so yeah, it's worth a fortune now, I think. Yeah. What about the seat condition? Because I remember with the grifters, you could pick the back of the seat to bits. Yeah, the, you just ended up with this metal lip well, at the back. The, the thing was, was also with the mudguard, you used to fold the mudguard over <laughs> the wheels, that made the motorbike sound. 
<laughs> so they all had uh, <laughs> on the back. But yeah, that was all that culture, wasn't it? I was yeah. like, yeah, my, all my friends had mongooses and stuff, and I had this fucking great <laughs> pumping around. Yeah, everybody's whizzing about, then you're just yeah. up the back. Boogie. But, I, can't, yeah, I can't stop them coming through. <laughs> but they were solid, really solid bikes. Yeah. I remember doing stupid jumps and so dangerous things on those bikes, you know, but it never fell apart. Yeah. We, we used to, um, it would be like, you know, you'd get a group of friends, everybody's got like grifters, racers, BMXs for the kids that were like fortunate enough to have it. Uh, you'd build some dangerous ramp and then somebody would always exactly have like what a... We, <laughs> that's exactly what we're doing <laughs> A wee boogie box playing some music, you know, be it whatever, whoever <laughs> had a cassette or something or the, the charts was recorded and then you would try and unkill your friends when you jumped them. <laughs> I remember wiping out into a fence one really bad. We put a jump at the bottom of a hill and we all came right down the bottom of the hill and I just flew off this jump and went straight straight into a, a fence that was opposite a railway station, just like a wire wire mesh fence yeah. about four foot up in the air and just boom <laughs> dropped down right onto my nut I said oh, I just I still remember the pain of that now and you went and bought another one <laughs> yeah bought another one brilliant brilliant so I mean as, as music's progressing and become one part of your life as uh, you know what's your kind of venture into like, the clubs obviously it was the, the, the ultimate school discos and all yeah, that kind of stuff well I, I kind of went head 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 strong into it in a way because um, where I was at school I was at school I lived in London but I actually travelled to Essex to go to school I used to have to travel about an hour out of school because my mum wouldn't need to go to a better school but obviously this is Essex this is where rave culture kind of happened this is where the prodigy yeah. were from this is where all those illegal raids were happening so what happened is I had a, a few friends at school that were into it that a year, a year above me in school and or it was like a gang of people that used to sort of, you know, nick the bunts and burners from the class and turn it turn it into a bong <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the back of the school field at sort of age 14, 15. And he started a party, a rave. At, uh, at, I was probably, I was the year below him, so I was like 15 and they were like 16, something. Or he's just, just old enough to drive, he was actually, because he got a car. And he started this thing called Elevations and Volatile State. And it was a, a warehouse party down in the Leebridge Road in a, in a venue called Wonderland. And he thought, we were into all the music. We'd oft, often go out to a place called High Beach where we were and sit around and smoke weed and listen to the to the to to all the rave music. And all the pirate radio stations were about in those days, Centre Force and all that kind of stuff. And we'd all often sneak and go and see people like Billy Buntner in um, the... Um, in Dalston, down there in the labyrinth, yeah, uh, and all of that. And then he started up this party, and the first party that I, I shit you not, the lineup for this first party was Shades of Rhythm, The Prodigy, Carl Cox, and Colin Dale. <laughs> wow. right? And he'd managed to get money to book these guys together. And this, this, this kid from your school's just put this his first gig. gig this first gig, right? Because it was just, it was bubbling. It was good. Yeah. It was bubbling. I don't, I think they just had Charlie Says out around wow. that time. Yeah. If that, if that. So, you know. He 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 managed to get all this money together to put this party on between a few of them and blah 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 in this warehouse. 
Um, and down the road was a party called Biology. And someone took a pill and died at this party at Biology down the road. Yeah. Obviously not good. But at this party, there was 8,000 people and they shut the party and it was on the same night and it was in walking distance wow. to my friend's party. So 5,000 people walked down the road into this uh, party, Elevations and Volatile State. Uh, and that was it. And that was that was, a, that was it. And then there was parties from then on. A few what parties. A flying start. Yeah, absolute flying start. Um, and... Yes, loads of parties. I'd go to the parties, get involved in the parties, going to the, to the club scenes and all that. And actually, Elevations then became Moondance. Okay, yeah. There was a big party here called Moondance. They sort of parted ways. But So he did maybe seven, eight parties, and I remember them taking almost like carrier bags full of cash out of these parties. Yeah. And on the last party his own security <laughs> robbed them all on gu- with gu- a gunpoint of all them because they're like 17 yeah, thousands yeah. he was driving a brand new Mercedes 190e Cosworth into school <laughs> wow <laughs> so that was my first insight into the rave scene and then also going to all the raves with those guys and doing all that and um going to Labyrinth and a place called the Dungeons in Leabridge Road and all of that and it was right into that hardcore scene so that was my sort of first entrance into it what an amazing start I've just tried to get my head around mate the story the story is that I I remember sitting on the stage with my friend I can clearly remember doing this at a few parties getting a a spliff or a fag and holding it up and lighting it on the laser Because they were that. Fuck the hell for a little while. <laughs> and then they stick poppers, they stick poppers in the smoke machine. <laughs> and it was just like how how this happened, I I just no idea how it got away with it. And how no one got hurt and, yeah, and people still had their eyesight. People still had their eyesight. How this got away with this. <laughs> I have no idea. I used to love the, the big sort of green laser when it dipped in and out the crowds, you know, that was just like... Oh, yeah. When you just kind of picture the raves back in the day, that's that's what I see. And and it's amazing that we just, still got a right just say, We are both wearing glasses here for anyone <laughs> that can point out. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> that, is, that is mental. That is, I mean, it's, it's mad as well because... It, I always think of the early rave scene and I go, right, it was amazing because it was that time where anything generally was possible. You know, like kids from your it's school. Brand new. There, there was, when it's so new like that, there's no laws to prevent stuff. Yeah. There's no, they had to bring all that in. Yeah, so, but here, here is, here's where I'm sort of, and again, just, just the more I've thought about it, so it was just that anything goes attitude, you can do it, you know, whether it's putting on a party and then that, I don't know if it's like a knock-on for the punk attitude where, fuck it, I'll start a band, I'll try and make some music, I can make some dance music. But then, as 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 Thatcher's kind of 80s entrepreneurialism, is that a, did that help the rave scene? No, and I, like, I'm, I know it's totally, I don't want yeah, to be a political podcast, just, it, but 
it just it just manif- just became this organic manifested into this thing of uh, crews and people coming together to do one you, you know to do one thing and which is put on a, a party you know yeah. and that was about just the stuff like driving around London in this this Mercedes 190 Cosworth with brand a new full of brand new 17 18 years old 18 years old paid for with cash right <laughs> uh, <laughs> with boxes and boxes of flyers whipping around london to all the record shops and clothes shops and dumping these flyers in yeah. well probably smoking weed out the window you know and parking on the side of the road in central London. Now you can't even you can't even drive there. You go to London now, and it's just like you know. There's no parking in London. There's security cameras everywhere. There's no you couldn't do. You know there was music blasting out the doors. Yeah. Just got away. It was just a different time. A totally different time. Wasn't it? As well, what's quite mad is when you know, and I think maybe. That was that kind of like almost like the kind of end of that party scene when you're saying like the criminal elements coming in, be it organized yeah. drug dealing or like the gangs like robbing your mates. You know, yeah. how, how that's scary as well, isn't it? You know, from that, that being in a high to like check this out, five thousand people to okay, take all my money. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was literally as, as the money got more and more, the criminal element came in it more and, and more and more and more and that stuff, and that's. <laughs> But then that's, you know, what I guess helped it become legal in a way because then they had to clamp down. And now look at the club scene now, yeah. how organised and professional it is. And and it's not better, but it's probably safer. Yeah, true. Toilets are better as well. Toilets are better, yeah. When you're looking, when you're when you're like that young raver going to these, I mean, an amazing start to just getting in your foot into the music. Oh, mate, like shades, shades of Rhythm. I remember seeing Shades of Rhythm live. I remember seeing the Prodigy live and Car Car. I remember so those guys on a regular basis. And I actually ended up doing a residency in Ibiza with Leroy. From, oh, uh, I could, yeah, Prodigy. Prodigy, at Lisa Lash's party. He was playing breaks in, in one room. Um, so we were chatting because we were some from the same area and blah, blah, blah. And started... I remember vividly one time them being at the Wonderland and them playing music in their little crappy van that they turned up and everyone starts shaking the van. Way, like this, like this. And we both started to tell this story at the same time and I was like, I was shaking your van! And <laughs> <laughs> As you're looking at these artists and DJs, are you, are you inspired saying to yourself, I want a piece of that or I'd like to try and produce music? How did How did the production side come about? I, I, yeah, bang into the music. I'd always been a kid that tape recorded stuff off top of the pop drum on the tape recorder off the TV and then had another tape recorder and playing things at the same time and then recording it on a, you know, all on like little cassette players, yeah, all yeah. kind of doing your own remixes, stop and pause remixes, edits, you know, where you play it, pause, rewind it, play it, pause, and then all record it on another tape. I'd always been like that. And I've um, always been, you know, fascinated with that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I was into the music, into the DJing, but I always thought from from an age of seeing, like watching all these DJ, DJs get all this adulation, and I was like, well, how's the music got onto that piece of vinyl? They are only playing someone else's music. Yeah. How's that music got onto that vinyl? You know that that yes, yes, they're brilliant at what they do, and DJing's an amazing art, and all that kind of stuff, working the crowd. But at the end of the day, when we're doing it, we are just playing somebody else's music a lot of the yeah. time. 
or, or be it your own music. But that's what fascinated me. And I was like, okay, I want to know how this works. So I, my first job, I was advised to leave school <laughs> before I got to sixth form. They were like, yeah, you're probably best off doing something else because you're not really here. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't there a lot in the end. I was out, you know, raving at weekends and parties in forests and telepathy and biology and all these places parking parking on the side of the M25 I remember once with a load of other cars just parked on the side of the motorway walked across the field I couldn't do anything about it too many cars <laughs> um, so Dave I said I've got a job in a record shop because I thought that was sort of music based is this in um, London or is it in, in in near where I used to go to school out in Essex okay and um I was living in London, but I travelled to go and do that job. Um, and yeah, I was writing off. And, and funny enough, a, f- a friend of my mum's ran a free magazine that used to go around to recording studios. And I, in the meantime, I put myself on this course to learn MIDI and stuff like this. I was going to private lessons to learn what MIDI is and all of this stuff. And I've done two or three lessons. And she she run this free magazine that went to all these studios. And I'd previously I'd written off to loads of studios and heard nothing. I'd tried all that stuff, trying to do something, heard nothing. She went, why don't we put an ad in this free paper for you, looking for a job? And, and that's what I did. And a couple, two or three studios rung up and went, no one's, this, this free magazine's been going for 10 years. And no one has ever put an ad in. It wasn't, to be fair, it wasn't even my idea. It was the woman's idea. Yeah. So no one has ever put an ad in to say they're looking for a job. We're really impressed. Trying to come from an interview. And I got I got one of the jobs at a studio in Carnaby Street called Macasso Music. Amazing. Which is, uh, it primarily does, did music for TV and film. And I, I was the T-boy there, the runner. Um, they did other stuff. They did some pop stuff and all of that, and, and the tape op. So I used to like go and pick tapes up from different dubbing suites and bring them back with the old quarter inch tapes and uh, make tea for the clients that came in. At the same time, the engineer there, or one of the other producers, a guy called Toby, who I'm still really good friends with today and still work for in a capacity, um, was teaching me how to engineer and program. And same with the boss there, a guy called Mike Canaris. He was doing the same teaching me you know i started start to learn after a while i'd write with the engineer we go right we need the 24 track changing so i'd change the reel change the tape for him right we need to plug this reverb in so i'd go to patch bay and plug it in can i have the reverb send back on a delay you go what do you mean send back on a delay right, and they show yeah. you how to do it and you you'd, you'd be the the, the t-boy in and then you know again i would sometimes i'd be making I shouldn't mention any names, really, but <laughs> I, 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 I would actually have a, a job in some studios of bloody skinning up for some of the clients that yeah. came. <laughs> or making, making these are quite famous people making them a pint of Jack Daniels and Coke and stuff like this for uh, some of the pop artists that came in. Yeah, and what kind of years has been? Sorry to cut you off there. What, what years? Oh, I, I was so when this has got to be in nineteen. 19- no, not 99. This is going to be 95, 94, 95. Okay. Something like that. Maybe early 93, 94, 95, around yeah. that time. And um, Toby, the guy who was there, was a big clubber. 
and he was a gay guy and he was going out on the gay scene and all of that he was like come on I'll take you to some clubs and we we started to go to this club called uh, Heaven on a Friday night uh, 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 which is had a night called Garage with um, a DJ called Blue Peter <coughs> Mrs Woods Rachel Auburn yeah and the Sharp Boys they were the residents there they were the residents and it was all about residents in those days they did yeah. all those clubs so it was just about going to see residents wasn't it around that time often yeah. in land um and it was just amazing it was the music was amazing so i've come from this you know essex rave scene and now i'm looking at this sort of four four music it was a you know age of love and shinny and access and all this kind of music it was brand new and coming out and all yeah. of that i was like fucking hell, this is amazing uh, and then started going to there and then started going to a club where a DJ called Pete Warman was playing on a Sunday called Sherbert, who's a mate, he was an amazing DJ then as well. And then one week we went to this club called Trade. Oh, How did you find about that? Just through going out and then same, same, same crowd yeah. of people that I've been yeah. going out with. And Trade was the first sort of legal after hours club in the UK. I opened at four o'clock in the morning and finished at three o'clock the next afternoon. Fuck it. So this was where a DJ called Tony DeVee was resident. Yeah. So I started going there. I remember walking down the first time, there was 2,000 people in this club, 1,500, 2,000 people. They only had two security guards for the whole of the thing. And you walked down into Turn Mills, and I remember walking down the stairs and looking across this sea of people with this coloured laser and just thinking, wow. Yeah. Every time they played a bit of music that got harder and tougher, the louder the crowd would cheer and to the point where you could sometimes couldn't hear the music through the crowd just going mad yeah. and it had an amazing sound system amazing lasers and lasers and you know combined with all the party stuff that was going on at the time it was absolutely amazing and I'd watched Tony DeV play and I was like right this is what I want to do so what I would do is I'd start making tunes with Toby, some 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 house music and that. And then I would go back when the studio was um no one was in the studio and I'd start using it myself to make my own tunes and stuff what, like that. What sort of door was you using back then? Would it have been a I was using or? an M MPC sixty. Oh, okay, right. I was all all outboard. It was an MPC sixty, which was great, and I used that up until a lot uh, in a lot of the hard beats were made on those those nucleus hard beats. I used uh -huh. it up for at least ninety nine, two thousand. Well, no, oh. not longer, two thousand, maybe two thousand and one, around then. Uh -huh. Brilliant piece of gear for absolutely making music. Really intuitive. Really, you know, you don't get lost in looking at stuff. You you're using your ears. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great for doing arrangements and jamming and all that kind of stuff. So that was using that. And then I would, um, I started, I found this place called Music House where you could get acetates printed up, dub plates. And uh, they were like 40 quid or 50 quid at a time, which is yeah. like a lot of money. Yeah, it was a lot of money out of my wages. So I would start getting these printed up, so I'm taking them down to trade and leaving them for Pete Wardman and, and thingy. And, these these guys, to their credit, were absolutely amazing and so helpful for my career because they would literally go, you know what? It's not quite there. You know, it's something I can't. It's good. I like the idea. It's not there like that. And I go right, okay, right, right, right. And I did this for quite a few months, a year, homing it down, listening. Yeah, yeah. To it. And they always took it, and they were always like, because I think they were impressed that someone had 
bothered to do this and bothered to bring it down from and blah 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 yeah I mean and it's then, not like you're giving them a cassette you're going all the way to give them an acetate you know which yeah. they themselves knew the prices and you know how it was done you're putting, you're putting in the legwork yeah yeah and um, eventually they start I'd go out and I'd hear one of them and I'd be like ah oh, ah oh. and then that just built and built and built until I would leave them an acetate in the record box and I'd just hear it that same night they wouldn't even listen to it. They just play it. They just play it straight off the bat. Yeah, they listen to it in the headphones. Boss, boss, boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bam. Because it was all about having upfront stuff, and there was a big competition between the DJs about uh-huh. you know, new stuff and blah blah blah. And Ian used to play a lot of my stuff down there as well. He was a big help with um, you know guiding sounds and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and it just built and built from there really. And, what, and then eventually, the tracks out. Were these just? Oh, I did all sorts of names. I, I mean, one I, I didn't realise at the first if I'd have put everything out under BK, it was only when I realised that that was the best thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Kind of all everything focused and came together. But I was I was doing stuff under the name the Razor Babes, uh, Sister Suck on a label called Friction Burns. Um, is this these, stemming from these acid, early acetates would you yeah, then yeah, sign them on the labels well, what happened with those acetates then this, this started getting bigger and eventually I, I went I left the studio I was working at in uh, Carnaby Street doing the TV and film and all that kind of stuff and I started to do some freelance work for um, media records as an engineer programming and I used to program with Stu Allen I used to engineer the clock stuff yeah oh, okay right all the old clock stuff and I was while I was engineering and working freelance there they had this label UMMM and I was started to do the Razor Babe stuff by then with Friction Burns and actually the stuff that I was doing on the side was selling more than the stuff I was not the clock stuff obviously because that was pop stuff but selling more than the underground dance stuff these guys were putting out and they were like oh okay why don't you come and do some of this stuff for us and that was the beginning of the Hardbeat series yeah yeah I did bits and bobs before then and then that became the Hardbeat series can you remember your first record how did that feel I don't I mean I don't know if you signed a contract there was any contracts shenanigans uh, back then or uh, handshake yeah. deals we, we, we both suffered from that haven't we <laughs> but yeah no that, that I suffered a lot from that yeah I mean I think it's it's, it's also just a naivety of youth, isn't it? You just want to get records yeah, yeah. You're, you're thinking more about the music than you are the business. That's it. That's but, 100%. You just wanted to get the records out and you were happy to have something on a piece of vinyl. Yeah, but the sad thing is, is those guys out there, and women or whatever, business men and women, knowing that and willing to take advantage of all these young artists. Yeah. You know, I think they knew that in the back of their mind, you know, like, that's just this right for the picking but, but anyway like, can you remember the buzz of getting your first record or is yeah, there any memories I, that stick out I think the very first thing I had on vinyl was a thing called BK Double Whopper or it might have been or it might have been one of the Razor Babes things it might have been Sister Sark or something like that yeah gotta get it up and which ended up on Tony DeVive's Live at Tel Aviv al- uh, album wow so um, that was good and then I think the, the real big one for me in the early days was a record called Come On Baby The Razor Babes uh-huh. and I remember driving around London in the day 
and this record coming on the radio in daytime, like on Tuesday afternoon or something. I'm thinking, what the fuck? And it was Tony DeVee had picked, uh, he was uh, on Kiss, and at that time they would, the specialist DJs would pick a track to be played on in the playlist. Yeah, okay. And uh, that was the track he, he picked. And I remember seeing him drop that a couple of times and just the place just going absolutely mental, you know, and trade and at the Love Parade and just things like that where it was dropped in massive parties and yeah. just the buzz from that, you know. And and what trade created, because, you know, a lot of this comes from that, that club trade because it, what Lawrence Malice created down there was... Um, it sounds so simple now, right? But at the time, he created a musical journey and that wasn't really happening in clubs. Often you'd get, you know, Colin Dow would come on, do an hour set, Carl Cox would come on, and it wasn't really linked. It was all about their own sound and their own sets. Yeah. This club would start with 130 BPM tough house stuff and it would just build and build and build. And then, it, you know, from um, Alan Th- Malcolm Duffy, Alan Thompson, to Steve Thomas, I did the Triple E track stuff, into Tony DeV, into EM, and then Pete Wardman or Tall Paul, depending on wherever it was or what time you were going to try. At the end, it just was this massive musical journey over sort of 10 hours or whatever it was uh, that just seamlessly moved and took you with it as a, as, as a clubber, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, you get the guys yeah. behind it thinking of the night as a whole rather than just. They were thought of the night. And it, look, it sounds so obvious now. But even actually, they don't do it. They, they don't do it great nowadays sometimes. But this was planned about the, like, you know, you'd still get it now because of big DJs demanding certain set times and this. And the music can be a little bit up and down at festivals and whatnot, can't it? Yeah. This was about the residents and this was about the music. And there was no real main set because it opened at four o'clock in the morning. Half past three, there was a queue outside of people off their face coming from another club. Yeah. <laughs> By the well, time we're ready to go, <laughs> ready to go. By the time record three went on, the place was full with fifteen hundred people. Yeah, and it was going off. <laughs> so there was there was no real main set, you know. Yeah. And me as a producer, I'd go right. I really want to make a record that Alan Thompson's going to play. Yeah, let's see if we can get Steve to play this one. Let's get Pete Wardman to play. Let's get EM to play this one. Let's get, which yeah. is why you look at some of the heartbeat stuff and there's some softer stuff on the other side. And it's all aimed at different times of the night in trade. Yeah. And if I'm really honest, I wasn't aware of any other clubs or had any focus on any other place apart from getting my records played at trade. That yeah. was all I focused on. It just so happened that there was, it spread out of trade to Sunday Central and all these clubs. Yeah. And just, became bigger I mean you, it kind of sounds like you'd, you'd basically done your apprenticeship in trade you yeah know. well I went from I went from taking acetates down there to being a resident DJ there for eight years and I, I, I never there were so many people trying to get gigs at trade always dropping tapes off tapes off dog. I never asked once to play at trade never asked was just there part of the furniture and you know wanting to make music and all this kind of stuff I never asked to DJ there. I was I started to DJ at other places because the, the the stuff was getting along. And then just one day, they said um, they asked me. To, there was a New Year's Eve party going on, and all like uh, all the other DJs had big 
like they were playing all over the country and they were like well some of them might not get there in time will you do us a favor <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> will you do us a favor will you, will you bring your records down just in case you've uh one of them doesn't turn up and you can stand in so i was like oh, nervous as hell i was like yeah 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 oh so i brought my records down stuck them in the thing they were like don't uh, then they came up to me halfway through the night wins don't worry, looks like everyone's going to make it in time. Thank you for bringing your records anyway. Really appreciate it. So I was like, phew, fine. All right, I'm going to go and enjoy myself now. I'm going to party. Yeah. So <laughs> I, 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 I partied, really partied. Party and I, was like, I partied hard, hard. And just as the partying hard took effect, they went, Oh. <laughs> Steve, Steve Thomas not going to make it. Can you jump on? You're like, So Gonzalo, who was there playing before, I put my first. Right, he waited with me. He said, "Oh, can you, I?" I think they were just testing to see how sober I was, right? Because yeah. Gonzalo went, uh, "I've got to go to the toilet. Can you just pop a couple of records on while I go blue?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, yeah." And then, and then he went off. I think he was just waiting just to see if I absolutely yeah. ruined it. So I was obviously partying. And he came back and said, it's fine, blah, blah, blah. And listen, the only reason I know what records I played is the next day all my records were completely in the wrong covers. And I just... <laughs> but they asked me back the next week to play at Turn Mills straight away. Brilliant. And from then, that moment then, if I, I was there sort of covering people. If they couldn't turn up, I, I'd go in and then... And then, yeah, and then, and then obviously when when Tony passed, there was a gap. So they moved one of the other DJs into Tony's set and I would cover for some of those guys. Yeah. So some of the other guys who were playing Tony's set at the time and then just got more regular and more regular. That's amazing because it was an institution and even to this day, people have so many fond memories and, you know, the legend that Tony lives on before I can kind of talk about that, I, I wanted to know how did the DJing thing come about? Because a lot of producers sometimes are focused on the production and they, they don't really keep an eye on their DJing. Was you always buying records for, for I, I inspiration had, as I, well? I was always a bedroom DJ anyway. Oh, okay, I had, right. I had, I had, you know, originally I had a couple of Sound Lab decks and then blue and yellow Newmark mixer. Yeah at home and I was always giving it a go and giving it a bash and all that kind of stuff and trying to learn how to mix at home and just doing it for fun on top of doing the production. So I always yeah. had it there. And of course, from coming from that early rave scene when I'd go around to friends' houses and everyone had decked, it was all about the DJing then. Yeah. It was only I just went off into that production path. Yeah. So the DJing was always there and I was always a bedroom DJ. But then I got, I did, at the very beginning, I did get... I mean, I got flung into the fire a little bit because I had records that blown up and all of a sudden right now, you know, I, I, I had to learn my craft in front of thousands of people rather than in front of 20 people. Yeah. A little bit at the beginning. You know, Can you remember I, I, what I knew how to do it. Can you remember what your first gigs were and, and how you felt Trades when the first one of came in? Trades was one of my first proper gigs, yeah. Wow. You know, it was one of my first. I'd done a couple of little parties here and there and stuff like that. But I mean, my first real, what I call, you know, aspirational, proper, proper gig was the place that I'd been worshipping for the last few yeah. years. So, 
That was right. I mean, these yeah. are fucking big clubs, you know, known around the world, you know, the names and that you're throwing about. Yeah. Are you not going in there like totally shitting yourself? Are you? Absolutely. I had Karim around my house the night before. Do you remember Karim? Karim was stalwart London, really hard DJ, played on a casing. Really I know nice. the name, but. Yeah, so he was around my house helping me choose records and that. He's like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Um, and I, I was absolutely shitting myself. And I I had seen horror stories at trade as well, right? If I they mean, never liked you, they would let you know, huh? Fuck me, yes, right? Excel podcast. I, it was, they had a thing called the trade vine, they used to call it. And it was, it was so concentrated and people were so... Uh, into the music so much that there could not be one bad mix there could not be a bad set there could not be a repeat of a record in the night it was hardcore like as in this needs to be everyone is waiting for each set almost to the point where they've got a pen and paper and pads to give marks what records you're playing everyone is waiting this is it was the club to play probably one of the best clubs in the world in fact uh, for me there's never been a club as good as it yeah it was probably one of the best clubs in the world you know you'd sit there and you'd wait for your m set and you'd be really what you wanted to play and when they and that 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 net was so tight of those residents, they were, you know, they were the they were the stars of the show, right? And each of them was a star in their own right in their particular set. That when anyone else came into it, a they weren't very forthcoming. They didn't like it, right? Yeah. Uh, B the crowds didn't especially cannot could not like it and i've seen before at, at turn mills <laughs> to get into the booth at the time you had a lock on a door it was a glass door and you'd walk into the booth and that would overlook the dance floor but you couldn't get in it had a key lock to get in i, I won't mention a name but a, another <laughs> well-known dj played there and started with a horrendous record one of the staff walked by and opened the door and people just pelted them with bottles of water. That's what I say. Don't, don't play that shit in this club. <laughs> Do not play that shit in this club. So there's that. That's and there's just a the, woman. There's also the technical side of it. Well, luckily, because I'd never, I was never a wannabe and I never really wanted to play and I'd always brought these guys' music down and I'd always been like, Steve, I've made this, I want you, for you to play in your set and given them their yeah. sort of exclusive and done the same with Ian, Ian, this is really hard, I think this is this is for you. And just being there as a clubber and, a, a, you know, become sort of friends and associated. Yeah. It was all right. And I remember walking in the very first time I walked into the trade DJ booth and it was I was playing after Ian. I think he was covering for Tony, and I was playing in the set that Ian would have normally done. And he went. He looked at me. He started on here. You all right? And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he could tell I was nervous, and he went right. Turn the crossfader off. Do this. Do that. Don't touch that. It's shit. La, la, la. If you turn the crossfader off, the volume is a lot louder in here. You can turn it off because I had a, I had a, uh, what was the a rain mixer without any, yeah, yeah. and then they had the Vestex EQs underneath oh, the okay. things back in those days because the rain mixers used to sound amazing. 
and then they had the Vestex EQ. It was before the days of Pioneer Mixers and all of this. Yeah. Then they had the Vestex EQs underneath and just, just boom, to drop the bass out with those. But um, And he just basically went, do this, do that, don't touch that, da 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 And that moment I was like, okay, it's all right. Because I had seen some of the DJs go, hmm, turn the crossfader back on, hmm, turn that EQ off. Yeah, yeah. I'll put it back to how it was before I set it up to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'd yeah, say yeah. That, and then the next DJ covered on the volume be really quiet and they'd be like, oh, <laughs> see ya. <laughs> and you'd be like, but no, he was like, you know, bosh, 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 do this. Yeah, do but that. that's, that's, that's great because what I was going to say, you know, like, before you actually DJ'd, you got behind the sort of the wizard's curtain sort of thing by giving the guys music and all that, you know. So they well, I was, I gave think you I that love back. Right. I never wanted to take their jobs. I never wanted to be yeah. a thing. I just wanted those guys to play my music, yeah. and and I wanted to learn how to make music. That's incredible. That's amazing. And so, what did you say? You were eight years, nine years as a resident there. I was eight, eight, eight years. I'm still playing there now. We've got the 30th is coming up there. 30th wow. birthday is coming up at the egg. So I'll still get booked there when they need me to come and play. I'll still get still get books. And there, Amazing. You know. And uh, again, I spoke to, to Fergie and he was like, telling us about Tony's passing and stuff like that. What yeah. kind of impact did it have on the club and in, in you back then? Because he was such a huge figure. Oh, mate. It was so... It just... Devastating. I'd literally, the week before he passed, I'd written a record called God the Devil. Um, and I'd sent it to him on cassette. And they'd rung me up the week before and went, Tony wants to sign this for Jump Wax. This is what I'd been working towards for ever. Yeah. Right. Still very early on, we're around the Razor Babe stuff. And Tony wants to sign this to Jump Wax and do a mix of it himself on the other side. Wow. And I'm like, that's it I've done I've made it I've made it <laughs> my work here is done <laughs> my work here is done you know that's all I wanted and um, brilliant and then I remember a week later watching turning on the news in the morning on ITV News and his passing was on ITV News in the morning like national news Tony DeVee the DJ has passed away and I'm just thinking that this that that music scene's never going to be the same. Yeah, never going to be the same. You know, I'm just devastated, obviously, for him and his family. But the impact I think it made because what people don't realise what Trey did and Tony Devi did is at that time there were gay there was gay clubs and there were straight clubs and it was almost like two separate people what that club did as far as straight people were concerned would completely broke down barriers and taught people about inclusivity acceptance all yeah. the other stuff that came with that club apart from just the music you know you're talking about me a young straight boy from east london going out and partying with a load of gay guys who are now my best friends in the world and I pass on that respect to my children. Yeah, right? amazing. And, and yeah. That knowledge of inclusivity. You know, I was partying down there with transgender people, LGBT, every, everyone, and it didn't even enter my mind about any sexuality, about any changes. These were just people I was out partying with and loved music. Yeah. It's only now when I look back and think, well, for some people that might have been, you know, who, who are not educated like that. It, what The imp social impact it made... And if you think at that time, Tony DeVee going out and being 
a, a gay male icon to hundreds of thousands, millions of young straight people. Yeah. That is breaking down barriers in itself, you know? Yeah, 100%. And you, you don't think, you only think about that after. It's bizarre, isn't it? When you think, I, I hadn't, I, I'd seen the rave scene as that. And now that you're mentioning specifically like trade and stuff like that, I, I hadn't even thought about that. And especially where we are now in the world. Yeah. You know, and you, I, that's, that's such an amazing, I, and even just like you're saying, you're passing that love on to your family. Which is a beautiful thing because both of us are the same age and growing up, you you, you know it how practicing, but it's practicing back then the stuff that we now take for granted and yeah. how it should be. But it's taken twenty years to get to where it is now. But it was doing that way ahead of its time yeah. before there was any of movements, any of this stuff. It was doing it through music and it was yeah. doing it through people going out for the love of music, you know. And the world would be such a evil or horrible place if it wasn't for um, for those uh, events, nights, DJs, music producers, you know, bringing yeah. everybody together. Yeah. Could you imagine what, what state would be in just now if we didn't yeah. have dance music culture? If it had come down, you know, that, that you know, there were some really dark times in this country, wasn't yeah. there? You know, only a few years before trade, it was still... Well, t- ten years before trade opened, it was still illegal in this country. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, and still then that the, there weren't as many rights. There was no marriage rights. There was no staff. Or, or, you know, all these people that went to that culture and now grown up, and I'm sure some of them are involved in law. You know, there God, there was judges down there. There was policemen down at trade. There was everyone down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Bank managers, blah blah blah. Those, you know, some of those people are going to grow up to be the lawmakers and 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 things like that, and help help society move forward through inclusivity and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's amazing when you think back on that. So, what you're you're DJing, you're producing. Was there a time when you thought that this is what I'm doing? That's this is my life. I, I, no, like I've made it, but. I'm where I want to be. Was there a, was there a, a moment you yeah. can remember as as such? It was. Do you know what? It's such a blur and a whirlwind as well. That time is a real a bit of a blur and a whirlwind because it went from naught to a hundred miles an hour within not a lot of time. Yeah. You know, two, a, a year, two years after I've DJing, I came number fifty in the top one hundred DJs. Yeah. You know, it went from zero to a hundred really quickly from me doing one gig a month to me doing six, seven gigs a weekend, you know, <laughs> just ridiculous, ridiculous times. And it's, it's all a bit of a blur. And I know it sounds really um, obvious to say it, but I wish I'd have enjoyed it more and taken, taken on board how amazing it was because now I look back at it, I'm like, fuck you know on Friday I was in South Africa on Saturday I was here and then I was in here and you know all, all this yeah. kind of stuff and it, it was just happening back then and you were doing it and you were trying to hold it together and do it and work out how to get from one country to another and do yeah. all this stuff and it was a whirlwind but now when you look back at it I wish I'd have you know stupid things that like I didn't keep all my passes and flyers yeah. and stuff because I just thought I'd have them forever. They're just, you know, it's another one. It's yeah. another one. There's five of those from this weekend, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've got a few bits and bobs, but, you know, not a lot. It's only now 
you look back and just think, wow, I wish I'd have not paid more attention to it, but wish I'd have known how special it was then. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's going to go on forever, right? I know. But yes, is it. But was, I mean, I've got to push you. Was there a time when you've just went, wow? It could have been a gig, could have been playing probably, with a tune and looking probably, at a crowd. Probably, but, do you know what? I, I played Dance Valley to 75,000 people. I've played massive, massive events, big, huge clubs in Kuala Lumpur, all over the world. But still, that time I played at Trade and that time where I was rebooked to play at Trade and I was yeah. playing at Trade, I was that was when I felt my smuggest. Not smuggest, that's the wrong word, but my most content. Yeah, yeah. Smug is the wrong word, or content. You know, my... Uh, that's why I was most content. That, that was, that still, that time at that club where Hard House was just evolving and becoming Hard House. And, and you know, Hard House is like, it wasn't, it was, there was Tough House music, there was techno in there. A lot of techno played at Trade. I used to play a lot of techno. Uh, sound and that used to play a lot of techno at Trade and all those DJs. It was just, everything was new. When it was new and you're like, you've been in the studio and you've been working, you've made this tune and you're like, I know, I, I can feel it. This is going to yeah. absolutely kill the dance floor at Trade at the weekend. This is the one that's going to smash the arse out of Trade at the weekend. This is going to be the one. And that's what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking about the other clubs I was playing at. Yeah. <laughs> this one's, this one's going to rip it up get to Trade, right? And when you played it and it did, and you're like, oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 my, that's the best times, you know? I mean, yeah. the best part. when we're doing the music is moving thing, the quarter again, oh, Cortina. I should have just put that under BK, but uh, actually, having all these uh, aliases really worked out back in the time because what I didn't, I started to realize was I was producing records for Andy Farley, Fergie, Lisa Pinup. If I took my name off these records when they came to do these compilations, I didn't want a whole compilation full of BK records, they wanted to have loads of artists represented. Yeah. But <laughs> if it was Cortina, Andy Farley, Lisa Pinup, uh, Beat Busters, Astra, all these Razor Babes, yeah. BK, BK remix on one of my own guises, I'd end, <laughs> I, I, I'd end up with like these albums were selling 250, 300,000 copies at the time, half million wow. copies. I'd end up with 14, 15 tracks on there. Yeah because I didn't name them all BK. So at first I was a bit like, oh, was that stupid? And then when these compilations started to come in, I was like, right, I need a few more aliases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but I suppose your out. output was that much. You probably yeah. couldn't have kept it all BK because it'd be clashing with other releases and all that as well, wouldn't it? No, but some of them like, you know, some of the ones that then ended up to be big, you're a bit like, oh, yeah, yeah. Cortina, maybe I should have put that as a BK record or, or, or whatever, but you know. It's it had it. It's good. It had, came out in the right time. Did the right thing. Yeah, I mean your back catalogue's massive, and also there's all the collaborations and stuff like that. Is that you just inviting friends in? And yeah, a bit, a, a, of, a bit of also getting lonely in the studio. You yeah. know, it can, it can be a lonely place, can't it? Yeah. You know, it, it's nice to uh, uh, you know the first collaborations album was just yeah having fun with friends like that and it's nice to get people in nice to work with Andy Farley and get them to bring samples in and you know that's I, I find that a valuable part of me learning production as well because you learn from other people yeah you know I was kind of always the one pressing the buttons and stuff 
um, apart from maybe with Nick Sentience and a couple of other people who engineered as well. Um, but still a musical education, you know, Andy Farley would bring in samples from here and go, oh, that come from there, this come from there. Have you heard this? No, I haven't heard it. That's ace. Who's that? Okay, yeah. oh, they're great. I'll look out for those in the future. And it just enhances you as a producer. And the thing is to do is to, what I always try to do is try and make a record. I look at someone and think, I kind of know what your sound is, your vibe. I want to make a record that's going to sound like you're involved in it as well. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course, yeah. Because what's mean, the point? Even working with somebody who's maybe no technically minded, they can suggest things like turning things up in the mix where you would have it sitting in a mix with like, no, I want to hear that louder. And then it, that kind of small detail just works in a finished mix in a club yeah. and you start hearing yeah. things differently. Right. Try, try, try going to this section instead of that section. Yeah. And you think, oh no, that's not how I normally do it. And then you do it and you think, that sounds really fucking good. Yeah, I'll be doing that again. Quick. <laughs> <laughs> And it does. It, it, it's like, I guess it's like, you know, being a chef and having other chefs give you different recipes that yeah. you can adapt and make yourself, you know. And people like working with Rob Tazera is always really good because, you know, he's really great with his vocals and he's really good with his hooks and, you know, he's really talented guy and that will rub off on you and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So just working with people can benefit you as well. Yeah, 100%. I mean, how did the the sort of nucleus thing come about as well because that was fucking huge that was took over the world that label that was the biggest selling independent label in the world for two years running doing over yeah. a million vinyl without question that came I when I very first started and this is the truth of it they, they, they wanted they were looking at doing drum and bass on that label wow and as I said, the stuff that I was doing, the Razor Babe stuff and all that kind of stuff was was selling more. So I did, was given the platform of the Heartbeat EPs to, to start doing that kind of stuff. And there was no, the, the reality is, mate, people will say there was, but there was no A&R for it. There was me going, this is a dat. Here you go. This is the next one. Yeah, here's a that. Here's the next one. Oh, by the way, have you heard this record? Maybe we should look at signing this in. Blah blah blah. So this Matt, is all coming through your productions, your residency, your DJ work. At the beginning, at the very beginning, it was, and then of course, you know, people learned. Then they brought Ed Real in, yeah, and stuff like that. Who, who learned about? He was he was a drum and bass guy, but then he learned about the the hard house and all that kind of stuff, and other people in and all that kind of stuff and then I would I would bring people like Fergie in and because they didn't know who Fergie was or they didn't know who Andy Farley was yeah. they didn't know who all these these other people were so I would start bringing them in for collaborations and stuff like that and it just grew it just grew and grew and grew and grew it was absolutely huge wasn't it Actually, was... they had parties in Japan on a weekly basis Canada America labels all over the world and people say ah oh, where's it gone Here's the difference, right? The people that owned it didn't have to carry on working for the rest of their lives. Ah, they're sitting in yachts <laughs> off some island at the moment smoking a big cigar or something, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, right. So that's why, you know, people have a get-out clause, don't they, and stuff like that. Yeah. But there's, there's rumours that it might be coming back. Yeah. There's a little exclusive. There's a little exclusive. I mean, that's that's flying high. That's I mean, that was one of those labels you just bought it because you knew it was going to be quality. 
yeah, that was the, that was the thing. The, the thing with Nucleus, it was about upfront new music and it was about quality control. That was what it was. It had to be good. It had to sound good. And it was up front. So it wasn't, although we did it a couple of times, things like uh, tracks like Eternal and other tracks were signed in and did remixes. Our mainstay was not going, oh, that track's big. Let's sign that in and do a hard house remix. Yeah. Our track was, let's make some new music. Every now and again, we'd see a track and go, right, let's sign that and and, and do that. Um, and yeah, and, and let's have some, yeah, let's have new music. It was about new music. It was the, almost like the serious side of Hard House rather than Tidy was the fun side of Hard yeah. House and all of that kind of stuff. This It was kind of seen as a little bit more the, the kind of serious end of Hard House. It was very, it was, it was the, it had the same ethos as Trade did. Where, oh, cool. you know, quality, a, 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 a group of people who we like to work with all the time and it was hard to get into. I, I, I mean, even like, I, I remember like, even to try and get a record, I mean, sending stuff away. That was always one of the labels you wanted to get music on and all that. But the stuff that was coming out, you knew the quality was high. Were, were you just like the in-house guy running it all, or, or was you more involved in the business? Or did again, was you just focused on the music? And I was just music. I yeah. wish I'd have been more involved on the business, but I was just music. Yeah, I would bring in Andy, Andy, and do all the engineering and produce all produce all those hard beat stuffs and produce uh -huh. a lot of people until obviously later on they started signing stuff in. And obviously it was involved with um, media records in Italy. So it had all BXR and yeah. Mario Cotto. You Amazing know, stuff. Mar Mario Pugh and all of that and I, th I think I think people will tell you otherwise but the reality with that that first massive Mario Bocato record I think they actually turned it down in the UK and media went no 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 you've got to put this out in Italy and of course it, then it was massive uh -huh. they were huge I mean I've, I've written I've, so what you're flying high you're putting things out you're playing all over the world was there a time where you felt you've hit a wall or there was a downside? You know, because it's... For, for it, people your, listening... your hobby eventually becomes your job. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're... All of a sudden, unless you have another one, you ain't going to be a big hit. Unless you do this, you're not going to be able to pay your bills. Yeah. And that changes your mindset of how it works. And also doing the same stuff over and over again can get repetitive for everyone. And especially for creative people, you know, you've got to move on. And sometimes you want to move on before people want to move on with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but then having said that, Revolution, probably my biggest track ever, um, was me going, I don't want to make any more records that sound like these heartbeats. <laughs> You know, everyone is now copying having that knocky kick and offbeat bass line. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to put a softer, rounder, warmer kick and I'm going to have a trance. I'm going to have something musical rather than something, yeah. you know, wavy. Uh, blah, blah, blah. That's what that was. That was a reaction to me not wanting to do that. And then that was the biggest, you know, probably the biggest record. Yeah. It's so much. So, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it's just been given a new lease of life. But I mean, did you get, did you have a, a time in, in your career, you know, a lot of people think, you know, music, DJing, it's just party, party, party. But there, there is a, 
there can be a dangerous side and there, and there can be lows. Have, yeah. have, you, have you, if you don't watch, speak about it, or you've yeah, not yeah, had yeah. any great, but have you had any times when you've questioned what what the fuck you're doing with your life? And- 100%. I mean, there was, they think there was a time where I would be in the studio on Monday and they'd be like, right, you've got a remix to do of Storm. You've got a remix to do of this. You've got your whole week. And I'd have to leave, they'd be in the studio five days a week under pressure to knock out these the next thing because you're only as good as your last record or your last remix um, and then have to leave the studio at five o'clock on a Friday and fucking get home and then leave my house and get back in on Sunday night after being in six clubs all over and the world as well all over the world and then have to be back in Monday doing this again and yeah. all that and with the pressure to deliver another record after when your ears are ringing you're absolutely knackered you feel like shit, you know, you might have been caning it a bit at the weekend because sometimes, sometimes by the time you got to gig four or five, you don't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you go join in, join in or, or go to bed or sleep, you know, it's, it's, it was a, it was a, a gruelling, gruelling few years, absolutely gruelling. And then that takes, takes toll on you mentally and physically and all that kind of stuff and uh, yeah sometimes you just think I just don't want to do this and it's it's bizarre as well because when you're kind of in the thicket it's not as if you can put the brakes on and go hold on a minute I need a wee holiday there just isn't any time for that because as you say the pressure's of in advance you're six seven a year in advance you know I, I remember once getting to January and looking at my diary and it was done till December every weekend and I'm thinking fucking hell yeah right okay <laughs> which when, I mean it's great to be busy and it's great to experience all these places but really you're only getting like a hotel a, a, a taxi ride and a club you're not seeing any of all these amazing places yeah. most of the time you're not seeing them but one thing I'm not going to do is complain about this yeah 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 how fucking lucky and at at the time you get tired and you get a thing like everyone but how lucky to be doing that and to be doing something that you love than having to go down get up at five o'clock in the morning and go to a hospital and work as a nurse or a doctor getting paid fuck all to do a, a job that's worth 20 times more than what you and I are doing, you know, we're yeah, good point. absolutely privileged to have done what we do and do what we do. Yeah, there's hard times and yeah, there's there's hard times with any job and creatively it can be hard to keep that that thing running. But if you really put it in perspective, Steve Thomas once said something to me, Steve Thomas, X-Trade DJ, he once said, it's only a disco, darling. <laughs> do you know what yeah. you can wrap it up as much as you like it kind of brings it all back down to yeah. yeah. and you know we're not running into fires having to pull yeah. dead children out you know it's like out. we are going to play a disco Oh, that's true. Uh, and we are privileged and lucky to be able to do it and yeah there, there, there's been some hard times there's some hard times where you know, you learn to deal with, you have to learn, to, this job you have to learn to take rejection on the nose, don't you? Just yeah. like, oh, why aren't I playing at that? Why am I doing this? Why is that not happening? Where's that? You know what? One of the best grounders is having children, isn't it? Yeah, of course. 
suddenly you realise actually what is important. Is it important that I'm third down on the billing at this party? Is it important that I not playing at that venue? No. Yeah, that's <laughs> really not. Is it important that I still enjoy making music? Yes, for me, it's important that I still enjoy making music because the more I enjoy music, the more successful it is. Yep. Well, there is a time where you, you're making stuff and you're not enjoying it because you're having to do it. And then your new music's not as good, is it? Yeah, I know. You can you when your heart's it. not on it. Yeah, you can't force it. So you're better off, you know, I've gone off and done to do the Tough London thing on Tool Room, which is great. I love doing all the house stuff for those guys. Yeah, now I was going to do... actually speak to you about that because, yeah. you know, I'd heard a few of the, the Tough London things when you were first doing it and I was just like, fucking yes, man, this is quality. How did how did that come about? Was it, Sam and was I it just where you were like... at? Sam, Sam and I just where we were at we were like fuck it let's give it a go and the first record we made was sent out to um, all the labels no one got back to us no one replied to us we were like yeah we still think this is a good record should we put it out ourselves let's get a promotions company and we, we, we rung up Stimpy at Concrete Promotions or whatever it is and paid 400 quid and had it mailed out to all the DJs everywhere we're like sod it let's just give it a go we are doing this for the crack of it we yep. did it for the crack of it for no other reason we didn't do it for anything we were like yeah we just do this for the crack of it really like what's going on on tour room and all this kind of stuff you know they're doing some great stuff it was inspired listen to it and think wow this is great you know it was inspiring and let's just do it for the crack of it and we we sent it out went out to the djs promotions guy rang up and said he said i've not been joking he said I've been doing this a while, but I've not had a good reaction to such a record for a long time. And we're like, wow, 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 yeah. So I speak, he's going to ask us, do you want to take it up to the next level? Whatever. Carl Cox started to play it. Everyone started to play it. Mark Knight, literally everyone started to play this record. Old Matt Smallwood, who I knew from back in the Half the House days, who was the, um, the A&R and label manager at Tour Room, who I'd sent the record to and he'd gone, yeah, it's all right. Apparently Mark had brought the record back into the uh, office and said, oh, has anyone heard this? This is really good. You know that record? Um, uh, is it still available? Uh, and we were like, so we stopped putting it out ourselves, put it out on tour room. It went top 10 Beatport straight away. Then we did another one and it went top 10 Beatport. And it just went from there. And it was, we were doing it for the, again, if you do music for the right reasons, for enjoyment, then it pays off. And now I'm teaching on the tour room academy, teaching people how to make house music. Amazing. <laughs> As part of, you know, with those guys and working with Mark Knight, doing, it did, collabs with Mark Knight we just had a record out on tour room again a few months ago we got um, a, a two or three more tough London things coming out we took a break from it during lockdown because uh, we took a conscious break from it in lockdown because we had a really good record coming out on Salado's label and Salado were like yeah we think this is the best thing you've ever done and it got released in lockdown and it has no benefit to you yeah and literally it was it was a good record but it was a wasted record if that makes sense. Yeah. So we, we just hold, we held back and now we've been making stuff and we've got stuff coming out now. And so we've got two or three things already signed. I'm just finishing off another one now. 
ready to go. So that'll that'll pick up. And it was a shame because the year the lockdown came, it was our first year where we had two or three bookings come in for Ibiza all without having to try and get gigs. We had some, you know, really good bookings come in with some really good lineups. And we were yeah. like, okay, this is this is starting. This is good good. We'd already played at high for Salado the year before and the, the things were coming in that were looking really good. <clears throat> and then all of lockdown came and that was gone. But yeah. You know, we've been back in this, that that grew to us making some hard music again in lockdown and stuff like that. And it's just it's just a journey, isn't it? You just follow the kind of paths that you're given. I think as well, the older you get, the more kind of fearless you get. As in, fuck it, I'm I'm going to do it because I'm in it. I don't care if people yeah. like it or they don't. I'm doing it because I'm doing it for me. Yeah, I mean, it's mad. So it seems so. I did. So during lockdown and just before, actually before lockdown, people started playing Revolution, Charlotte Duet and Amelie Lenz and all of that started dropping Revolution. And you look now and those guys, I'm being tagged every day by 20-year-olds playing my nuclear stuff and it's just blowing up again. And then, uh, so that led to me speaking to Alan Fitzpatrick. Alan Fitzpatrick used to be a hard house boy. I never uh, knew that. It used to be a hard house game. Test Babies was Adam Fitzpatrick. Wow. If you those. And um, like, so let's 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 do this again. And they got like Rene Zonderveld did a remix, and they got some amazing remixes done. And I did a version myself as a new 2020 version. And what the, you know, the thing that's made me most happy is when the old promotion sheet came back. They spent. They've got all the who's who to do remixes. The, the version I did seemed to be the most popular, and that's amazing. The, it seems everyone seems to have played, which is really good. Which has led to me now. I've just done a remix for We Are the Brave, and working on a remix now for a big trance label. So all that stuff's coming naturally, organically, coming back in as well. Yeah. Well, almost full circle sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. But then you've you've now got a new approach where do you feel like your your sort of scope for for music is a lot wider, and you're you're getting a chance to be even more creative with where you're going forward. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, I've got the house thing I do with Sam, the tough London stuff. Now the BK stuff. It's it's the first time in. Um, a long time I've really wanted to put some effort into doing the BK stuff because it's not that I didn't want to put effort in for it it just well, I'd, I'd been there I'd done that I'd I'd made that and I wasn't inspired to make any BK stuff but actually at the moment I've been really inspired I've got like 13, 14 new tracks sitting ready to go got, yeah I've got to say remixes coming out on some really good credible labels and stuff as well so i've got some some good stuff coming out i didn't want to just do bk stuff and release a sound alikey record from the nucleus days on a small hard house label i wanted to 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 come back with a bit of a you know work on it and hopefully come back as a modern day version of yeah well and hopefully and i'm sure this time around you'll be keeping all the 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 flyers and the the, the bands and all that. I doubt it. I'm <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I'm like I'm terrible on social media, all that kind of stuff. I'm you know my favourite days where I used to give someone a dat, and they go right there you go, and then forget about it and let them do what they do. Yeah, with making the record big or whatever, and then go out and enjoy the DJing and stuff. But you know I'm not a social media person my instagram's probably terrible and all that and i just 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 not something that 
interests me. It's really hard to be into that and do production. I'm in the studio all day, so that's where your where your time lies. How can I? Yeah, do that, and then you know all of that. So I'm not worried about all that stuff. If you, I just think if you have a big record, it's a big record. It'll go from there. Yeah. Is there any? Is is there any? You know, depending on what hat on, as in what you're going under, do you do you get? You know, kids coming out because you want to hear BK at a tough London gig or that. Are, are, are you just happy? Yeah, you're, just getting, whatever? You're, getting, you're getting crossover stuff. Yeah, you're definitely. You're getting, uh, you're, you're drawing people in from different markets to come and see what you do. I know a load of people that are into the hard house are now really into tour room. And I've had a few people of those people actually come on the tour room courses and stuff that I do. They, the academy, the academy they do is amazing. It's a good 12 week course. I do that for them. And I do a similar thing for Tidy, which I was doing during lockdown when there was nothing else to be doing was teaching people how to make house music and teaching pe- teaching people how to make hard house music which I absolutely love as well and again yeah. that's been brilliant and again you know there's a, a kid called Fletcher Kerr that's come through and he's making stuff and he was one of our students he's a Scottish guy Scottish kid come up from up your way uh-huh. um, he's, he's starting to do stuff and now he's getting stuff signed to Tool Room oh not only is he getting stuff signed to Tool Room he entered a, a Tidy Tracks Untidy Remix competition and won that so he's you know these new kids aren't looking at it as anything apart from this is just music wherever it is yeah which is really healthy you know it's just, yeah. oh, I'm going to this I'm going to do that you know really healthy but he's I still mean, got his own sound his own thing so that's really good um, so yeah really enjoyed doing the Tour Room Academy stuff really enjoyed doing the Tidy Pro stuff as well which has been good fun and again that's been like uh, eye opening that some of these kids are like are coming on a the course they're like 20 year old kids and they're like oh yeah I've got all your stuff here I know that one I know this one yeah I've done this then they're, they're coming on the courses because of your previous history if that, if that was yeah. You know. I mean that's that's the thing that's so appealing to it not only are you getting taught something that you're extremely interested in but you're getting it taught by someone who you admire you know as a DJ or a producer or whatever it just I think it makes the connection that more real and uh, you will inadvertently bring out the best in these people because I would maybe in Oz too strong a word but they well, are there because of-, of what you can offer yeah, I mean, one of them said it's because it's not like it's because I'm still doing stuff. Like yeah. one of them was at Awakenings, and he was at Awakenings, and he was at Drum Code, and Anna played Revolution, and he's like, "Well, it was the biggest." He said, "He said to me, it was the biggest record of the night." You know, you could. They, it was absolutely massive. It, he heard it so many times at ADE out this year. He was out in ADE and stuff, and he was thinking, "That's my tutor." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's you're it's relevant, not, you know. You're not like some old stuffy, you know, teacher that, that you can imagine. To, that's the thing to do with music. I think is is always keep moving forward. Uh, uh, keep moving forward. You can look at the past and take influence from the past, but keep up with technology. Keep up with things. Don't become, you know, don't become a, a dinosaur as far as that concerned. Stuck in your ways. You yeah, stuck in a rock. I mean, just these people that always look at young kids and go, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. It was so much better in our day. Fuck off. It was different <laughs> in our day. Yeah, these yeah. kids are living what we live now. Learn from what they're doing and take on board as well and, and move with everyone. Is they, you know, there's no way it was. It was. It was just different in our day. It was different. Yeah. You look at DJs like Charlotte Duet and Amelie Lenz and that. They're absolutely 
smashing it and they're smashing out the hard stuff. They're doing exactly what we were doing back then, but on a on a kind of bigger scale and they're they're doing amazing, you know? Yeah. So I mean just you touched on lockdown there. As dark as it was, I think a lot I loved of people it. I've spoke to it I loved it. such a creative period for a lot of people. Um, I'd be happy to do a lockdown at least once a year. <laughs> <laughs> me, and, me and Billy Bunter were talking about, I was, I was doing a chat with Billy Bunter the other day and we were just, we talked something, again, we did for, for the crack of it, known yeah. him for years, never done it, always talked about doing something, you know, for, for the fun of it. Yep. And life is rave influence, that's where I originally come from as well. So we were like doing that and he was talking about it and he was like, do you know what? I loved it as well. He said, you know, we've been out, I've been out every weekend for 25 years. Yeah. 20 years, you know, having to go out, not having to, it's a privilege to be able to do it, but then having an excuse not to go out and do it was great. Yeah. I, my, my partner is from Leeds. She came down and stayed with me all during lockdown and we discovered all these walks and things yeah. that I've never done before and stuff about the local area and they did these stupid Zoom quizzes with friends. He's a real eye-opener to what's important again. And I think it's, if anyone takes anything from lockdown, and even if it was a bit crap, it's it, a real eye-opener to what is important in life. And that is being social, seeing family, being how privileged we are to go to these clubs, how privileged we are things. And the biggest moans I saw about people online, oh, they're taking away the privilege of all going to our clubs. I was like, I ain't seen you in a club for fucking years. <laughs> I'm out every weekend. Yeah, yeah, and you maybe funny. come out once a year, right, <laughs> when it's your birthday, if you can be bothered to come out, and you're the one who's complaining about, oh, they're taking my privilege away for the once a year. But I'll tell you what, when the club's open, I expect to see you there every single bloody weekend. Yeah. You're not going to be. Yeah. Uh, just people are going to mourn They're going to mourn it. That's what they do. Yeah. I mean, just look, take the positives from it. You know, it's an eye opener to what we, how lucky we are to be able to do what we do and when we do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I mean, that's what, that was great just to be able to get some creativity in some dark times kind of thing but I, th I think we'll wrap it up there Ben it's been absolutely fucking amazing just chatting with you man and, and, and listening to your journey hey. I hope you've enjoyed still it going. as well yeah, yeah well that's it that's what's great about it still good mate still going and what about yourself what are you doing I'm just still uh, cracking away with music and you know I've, I've been doing all your stuff with Blandy yeah yeah I mean that was that was what we did we we done an album together just through having a laugh basically you know and, and having that best focus way. yeah that's way the best way we, I mean, we did it through over the zoom and file sharing and all that but just to have something to focus on you know yeah. when, when the world is going to shit you know we, again my wife and I we did all the walks and cycling and it was just amazing to do that but then it was like getting your time in the studio and, and having a focus because I, I kind of I kind of need to have a focus yeah, I, I'm the same. I need a deadline. Yeah. I need a de deadline and a focus is always is helpful. Yeah. I've been doing this new sort of project for BK and it's gone on longer than it should because I didn't have a label or a deadline going, well, you know, this is out and da da da. I yeah. need I need a focus and a Do you think there could be a BK album on the way? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. I might I, I was thinking about doing a Kickstarter for a for a new heartbeat album, you see. Yeah, you should, man. I mean that's it's, it's just a great way to 
to get there. I, I mean, I think it's great to get stuff out digital. I, I really think it's great to get music released, but you know yourself when you get it on a on a record kind of thing, it just seems I don't yeah. know, just like more of a tick or an accomplishment. I think, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to do it and do it with some some product, physical product as well. And all yeah, like yeah, just having something tangible again. But uh, that's a great idea. I mean, I've I've done a couple now, and and I just think the process is really easy. And, and and again, it gives you that deadline and that focus to to work towards. Yeah. yeah so that's 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 what I'm looking for doing in 2022. Brilliant, man. Brilliant. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been an absolutely a pleasure to speak to you, man. Thank you for having me. Facebook, DJ Malorca Lee. I've been up for four days. I don't watch right and wrong anymore. Oh, wow, this stuff's incredible. Excellent. Podcast.